Among the world's many mysteries, there are few that have captivated scholars more than that of the Voynich Manuscript. It's a text that has been studied for centuries, and we know a good amount about it, but at the same time, we really know nothing about it. The book itself is full of strange art, familiar-looking charts, and indecipherable writing. But in the larger picture, how and why did coded languages begin in the first place? Let's find out today on the Gems of History podcast. There have been times that I've thought about changing the intro music. I'm just like, I feel like at this point I can't. It's kind of grandfathered in. Yeah. Based on, I don't know, just always being there. But but it'll be funny because like on some episodes, there'll be like really dramatic music behind the intro read and then it'll just go into like the really like upbeat intro music. It's always the funniest thing with the Gems of Horror episodes that we do. Yeah. Welcome to the Gems of Horror. And then, yeah. But and also, like now, like you mentioned with the uh, intro reads, yeah, <laughs> I remember the one that I found probably the funniest was well, not funny. Well, no, I was sick with it. The funniest by far was after we did the Zodiac Killer one. <laughs> it's just like I, I can't get rid of it. It's just, it's a part of the show. I know it's, it's who we are. It really is. It stands for. It encapsulates everything that we stand for. <laughs> I mean, it honestly kind of does. It'll yeah. be like a very dramatic topic, and then we're just two silly geese over and here flying in the airwaves, just honking all over the place. <laughs> all over the place. Speaking of honking, welcome to the Gems of History podcast, everyone. I'm your host Jacob Shop. Joining me, as always, is Evan Roosh. Was that a good one? That was beautiful. Right. Oh my god, that was tremendous. I'm I mean, so proud. That was great. <laughs> that is what we do around here, just honking around. Just honking around for sure. But doing well. Doing well. Excited for a nice little yeah, yeah, app yeah. today. Talking yeah. about some spy things, if you will. So should spy we let, adjacent things? Should we let them in on our, our hidden secret that we tried to do this episode like two years ago and it just didn't work out? That was actually the biggest part. This was recorded two years ago and yeah. releasing it today, yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, we uh we were gonna do this topic a while ago, like when Mark was still one of the hosts and everything, and the audio just got messed up and we never came back to it. And now here we are. Do we remember didn't we have Keezen on that one too? Our, our former, I mean, our, one of our guests, Austin Keeson. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember. I want to say we did, but yeah, that was a long time ago. But yeah, my audio got way sped up at the end, and it sounded really funny by the end. Yeah, <laughs> so it didn't work out. Uh, but yeah, well, today we're going to be talking about uh, the Voynich manuscript towards the end of the episode. But the uh, first half, we're going to be talking about cryptography and code breaking and stuff like that. So uh, we're we're going to venture across a lot of time periods today. I'm so excited, just the evolution of spies. But I think in general, like the different spy categories, spy shows, I absolutely love anything to do with like those like Cloak and Dagger, like almost like Cold War stretches where spying was everything. I think it's extremely interesting because what happens behind the scenes, even maybe today that we won't learn about for another 30 years. Oh yeah, definitely. It's just like all the information gathering and stuff like that. It's Yeah, it's very cool. Right, but we're... It's super excited to see how it's progressed throughout, I mean, entire of time, which also very interesting ever since people could uh, communicate with each other. 
we haven't trusted each other <laughs> We've so had much. Secrets. Yeah, <laughs> so much that we have to hide things or hide different messages. But es- especially since we started writing stuff down, because oh my gosh, then it's yeah. like, oh well, someone else could just take this. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think there was very much trademarking or copywriting back in the day. So that was that's very funny. Like how business was probably dealt with back in the day. Yeah, it's like, look, I invented the wheel, and someone. Right next to you is like, well, I invented the squeal, the wheel, but with no squeaking. Like, okay. Or it's like a a guy in ancient Sumeria, and he's got like this brand new thing that nobody else has done yet. And then at the bottom, he writes like a cuneiform symbol and circles it. And he's like, that's the copyright. That's the copyright. (laughs) (laughs) The cuneiform. Well, you can't get them all, you know. Sorry for everyone, everyone new joining the show. <laughs> not every episode is going to be gold, you know. <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> it's not all coming out swinging. Oh uh, my god, I'm sorry. <laughs> I just, I just, I'm on Google Maps right now. Just pat our conversation before. Oh yeah, our uh, before we hit recording, <laughs> just looking at different places in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Yep. There's a bar called the Todd Mahal. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that is beautiful. If that <laughs> Not is, a sponsor, if that isn't wordplay at its best, like that's the best wordplay we're going to talk about all day today. Oh, I guess we should talk about what we're actually talking about today, huh? Get to some other various types of wordplay. Yes, yes. So, since as Evan mentioned, since the beginning of time, people have had secrets, and since the time those secrets came into being, people needed a way to make sure that those secrets stayed secret. And the best way to do that was to come up with codes, whether in your speech or once it started being written down in the text. Some people used code words, but eventually ciphers were created to keep writings as complicated as possible for enemies to crack were the information to fall into the wrong hands. This led to the development of two types of hidden language methods known as steganography and cryptography. So the difference between the two is that steganography is the method of hiding secret data within usually an ordinary type of non-secret medium to avoid detection until it's reached its destination. Basically, you're hiding it in plain sight, whereas cryptography is the art of writing and encrypting the messages themselves to make them difficult to decipher even if someone were to find it. So basically, steganography, you're putting a wall in front of the information so you can't even see it, whereas cryptography, you have the message, but you don't know what it says. Right. A very basic comparison or example of steganography, which isn't an actual example of steganography, is just like a simple crossword puzzle, right? That you can see, or not crossword, excuse me, um, where you circle the letters. Is that crossword puzzle? Yes. A crossword puzzle. We're doing great. <laughs> but yeah, just a bunch of letters, and like in the midst of said letters, you see a word popping out, but in this case, they well, would I, do... No, those are word searches, not crossword puzzles. Crossword puzzles Where's are the, the ones the with guess, the numbers and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, like yeah, yeah. We, we know things. And Seinfeld, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, yes, uh, a word search puzzle, which it's just, you can see it, you just have to see with your brain and know what to look for right steganography exactly so both of these practices started all the way back as far as ancient sumeria and ancient egypt and in egypt certain groups or certain houses may have developed their own secret symbols within the hieroglyphic system that only they would know 
And then these less known symbols would then be substituted for certain hieroglyphics to transfer messages between families or between the group that knows what's up. But basically a way to telegraph information from one group to another without someone else knowing. The original way to send messages, like in today, we have just, you know, the boys group chat, (laughs) which is full of the most crazy things that you'll ever see. It was just pharaohs just sending mixed, like, funny messages to each other. It wasn't, but yeah. I mean, half the people that look at, like, group chat conversations now, it's just a bunch of random GIFs or pictures or whatever, so no one's going to know what any of that means anyways, (laughs) except the people in the chat. So yeah, it's basically that. (laughs) Today, we just use irony and several layers of, like, internet memes. Yeah, nihilistic sarcasm. Yes. So one example of using different types of hieroglyphics in ancient Egypt was on the inscription in the tomb of mm, Khnumhotep II. And these unusual hieroglyphics were used to change the form of writing to make it seem a little more dignified. So it wasn't necessarily a code that was meant to be a secrecy type of thing, but it was the first known example of transforming a language from its original text into something different to mean something else. Putting a little extra pizzazz on it. If Putting you will. an enye. An enye, yeah, exactly. <laughs> to make it sound exotic. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> Similarly, Sumerians would make different basic cuneiform texts to help disguise the words that they were writing down. And one prime example of this was when there was one man who developed a specialty glaze for his pottery, and he wanted to keep it a res- the recipe a secret from all of the competitors in the area. So he wrote that recipe on a tablet, and he changed up the form of the cuneiform lettering. And although it was later found and deciphered, it proved that the earliest languages were already being used to hide secret information. That is very funny that like you like we talked about before with the trademark, like a special way to conduct your business that makes you better than everyone else. You literally have to put the recipe in special characters in special ways. And it's it's so funny that Can you imagine all those like sorry to interrupt, like all the potters who were like, ah, oh, we found it. <clears throat> ah, this sucks. Right. <laughs> I, I just love this. that it's like a pottery thing where right. it's like yeah, that was important. Like totally. that's where you stored stuff. So right? having a specialty recipe to make that kind of a big deal. Oh, for sure. But now it's like we try and keep nuclear codes out of the enemy's hands. Right. Very different stakes. Hey, that man's pots though. They could have carried like the pharaoh's cat or something like that. <laughs> or the pharaoh himself. Or the pharaoh himself. <laughs> Most major early civilizations had some sort of cryptography, such as the Arthshah. Oh my gosh, I knew I was gonna mess this one up. The Arthshastra, Arthshastra, Arthshastra. Try saying that five times fast. But it was an Indian treatise on politics, economics, military strategy, and social organization, hmm. and it describes espionage tactics basically giving the spies their assignments in secret writings, quote-unquote, similar to like an early version of a James Bond novel, I guess you could say. Right, right. But it proves like from the beginning, people were using this for whether it was military or political gain. So it quickly went from pottery recipes to... Overthrow the government. Societal (laughs) organizations, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the amount of... And also to do it... In a lot of cases, in a almost like public sense, 
like where anyone can access this. Like if anyone finds the recipe for the pots, you know, the entire industry's blown up. If anyone finds these assignments for spies, for political movements, for army movements, you kind of have to be very public with that because this isn't the time where you can send individual messages to people. Right. right? So you kind of have to have it in a relatively public matter. Yeah. And I, I really wish I could, we had like examples of what these secret writings are. Cause I want to see like, damn, what, they're good. <laughs> I want to see what these really, really early types of ciphers were like and see like how yeah. complicated and complex they actually were. But I mean, most of it is pictography writing. Like, right. It's not really lettering at this point. So I guess it probably just would have been drawing different pictures. <laughs> right. If you see three moons, you have to go on the third week. If, or something the, like that. if the wings are blue with red on the ends, then it means something different. <laughs> Someone's just holding a, almost like a cheat sheet, like yeah. imagine a note card, but made out of clay. <laughs> Pulling their glasses down to the tip of their nose, like, oh, oh man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, if you were colorblind, you're effed. <laughs> RIP on that one. Uh, another early cipher was known as the Atbash cipher. At- another early cipher was known as the Atbash cipher, and it was used by ancient Hebrews to encode their writings. However, for from today's standpoint, it's pretty simple, but at the time, it was probably pretty advanced. And it's a basic substitution cipher. So this means that it took a letter of the alphabet and just substituted it for another letter. And in this case, it took every letter of the alphabet and correlated it to its place in a reversed alphabet. So, for example, in the English language, that would mean that the letter A would be substituted for the letter Z, B would be replaced with the letter Y, and so on and so forth down the line. So once you get to the middle, then there's kind of some that are going to overlap depending on how many letters you have. Interesting. I'd be very curious to print off one of these and see if we could, if you subscribe to our Patreon and you want to see that type of content, uh, a video <laughs> format, maybe we can uh, maybe work something out. Yeah, maybe Evan and I will each write each other two things in different cipher codes and see how long it takes for us to figure it out. That will just be a compilation of hidden messages to overthrow the government, but and Taylor Swift lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say mine will just be I have the high ground, Anakin. Oh my God. I have to try and figure out how to get there. <laughs> <laughs> it's just I have the high ground, Anakin, but in a million different languages. <laughs> <laughs> in like 16 different symbols. Yeah. Moving the clock forward a little bit, the Spartan military developed one of the first ciphers that was used by everybody across the entire military organization. And the strategy consisted of taking a log or a staff of a certain thickness and coiling a strip of leather or a strip of thick parchment around whatever piece of wood that they had. And then as it was coiled around, the message would be written in lines down that coiled piece of leather or parchment. And then once you unwrapped it, Mm -hmm. it would be nonsense. Like if you looked at it as just a straight strip, it would just be random letters. Right. Look at this piece of paper. Yeah. You just cracked the code. <laughs> uh, but then once you got to your recipient, you would give them this code. They would wrap it up again around a similar thickness staff or piece of wood, whatever they had. And then once it was wrapped up again, you could read the message down that strip. It's very funny to imagine the secrets of an entire nation depending on the thickness of a piece of right. of a stick. Yeah, so this one, this one's not foolproof because if you get there and they don't have something to wrap it around that's like the same thickness, I guess you're kind of just like, well, 
Yeah, it's there, mostly there. There's some room for error. <laughs> there's definitely room for improvement in these early uh, early attempts. But after the Spartans tried this method out, uh, as they usually tended to do, the Romans decided to change the game again. And this time it was specifically Julius Caesar, as he tends to pop up in history quite a bit. He really did it all. Aptly titled the Caesar Cipher, it is now one of the most famous ciphers in history. So instead of taking the alphabet in reverse like the Atbash cipher did, the Caesar cipher took each letter of the alphabet and shifted it a certain number of characters to one side. So for example, if you used a cipher quantity of three, which is what Caesar usually did, you would take the letter A in the English alphabet and you would shift it to the letter D. Then B would become E and so on and so forth, just moving it down the line by a quantity of three letters. Caesar, man. That's actually really cool. And like, we'll get into some different things with like steganography as well coming up here. But the innov- like the innovation for each almost like culture to come up with their own thing based on kind of their own writing style was pretty fantastic. Yeah. And I mean, this one's nice because with the reverse alphabet, you're kind of limited. You only mm-hmm. have the really the one way to do it. Yeah. With this one, you can shift it as many numbers or as many quantities as you want down the alphabet. So, I mean, he usually would use three because it worked for a while. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, if you needed to, you could shift it five letters. You could shift it seven letters, whatever you wanted to do. So, if we use the Caesar example of three letters, if we took the word bat, B-A-T, you would change those letters and it would become E D X. E D is in dog X. So if you saw that just written on a piece of paper, be like, what the heck? Yeah. <laughs> There's <laughs> nothing to get from this. This means nothing to me. The cipher was first recorded in the first century AD by the Roman historian Suetonius. And although it is relatively simple to us now a lot of the population wasn't very literate at the time and thus the cipher worked well enough for caesar's purposes and it was a step up from the older cryptographic methods in the fact that you need to know what language the code is originally written in Mm -hmm. if you know that then you can move to the next step of the process in cracking it which would eventually become known as frequency analysis but knowing the language in all of cryptography is the biggest first step (laughs) And this is at a time where, I mean, I assume not a ton of people are bilingual, like in the ancient Roman ages. I mean, sure, Rome was trying to get everyone that they conquered to speak their language, but still, I mean, you have to also find someone that can speak the language before you can even do the code breaking. And even then, they just learn the language, and it's like, oh, EDX. Right. You're supposed to know that's bat. (laughs) It's similar to, like, when we the discovered america like we had to learn the new native american languages and stuff like that to even communicate and so if they tried to do codes to fool us if we didn't know the language didn't mean anything to us anyways then we sent smallpox (laughs) we saw their codes and we raised them an illness that killed all of them In the mid-8th century in the Middle East, it saw one of its most peaceful time periods known as the Islamic Golden Age, which during this period, scholars collected books on astronomy, religion, mathematics, and other studies and spent their time advancing their collective knowledge. One of the biggest things that they were studying was the Quran, or the Muslim holy book, 
and the hadiths, which were the written sayings of the Prophet Muhammad. These Muslim theologians spent time scouring the words to try and define which of the hadiths were genuine writings and which were not. And in order to do this, they found a new way of studying the texts. They realized that certain letters in the text occur more often than others, leading to a practice known as frequency analysis. Basically, by looking at the hadiths and the Quran side by side and using frequency analysis, they could tell if the writings seemed to be similar in style and if the phrasing matched that of Muhammad's writings. And that was how they were determining whether it was genuine or if it was something that was added later. Like one of the biggest religions of our age basically came down to like recurrence of letters. Yeah. And just phrasing and wording. And phrasing and, and wording. I mean, I'm sure that a relatively similar process was done with the Bible or other holy literatures. That's very, very interesting. Like, how many vowels are in this one? All right. This is the word of old JC. But it's, it, it's a simple, it's like a very simple philosophy now to yeah. realize, like, yeah, the letter A occurs way more than the letter X does in writing. So yeah. it's, it's, very commonplace for us to know that, but frequency analysis back in this day, they've realized was more useful for other things than just theological studies. And this was realized by a man known as Abu Yusuf Yaqub ibn Ashak al Kindi, who is a well known Muslim philosopher. Honestly, props. <laughs> I practiced that one a couple times before this, but we're just going to call him al Kindi if, if, if we name him again. You're just in the mirror, like. You got it this time. You got it. <laughs> Just slapping myself in the face if I get it wrong. One of Al-Kindi's writings was also on cryptanalysis, in addition to his other philosophies that he wrote. And in this text, he wrote, quote, To solve an encrypted message, find a different plain text of the same language long enough to fill one sheet or so, and then count the occurrences of each letter. Call the most frequently occurring letter the first, the next most occurring the second, and so on. Then look at the ciphertext and also classify its symbols. Find the most occurring symbol and change it to the first letter, the next most common, the second letter, and so on until we account for all of the symbols of the cryptogram we want to solve. Basically, what he's saying is figure out which letter is the most common and use that as the most common symbol in your cipher, and then you're off. And even though it might not be a perfect science, it's going to give you a very good basis to try and figure it out, and then you can kind of fill in the gaps as you go. That would blow my mind. I'm right. not going to lie. If I was handed one of these, I would probably be there for quite a while. Yeah. But, I mean, before this, the only method of solving ciphers was just brute forcing your way through it and trying different things until something worked. Taking a hammer to it and just... <laughs> right. And, I mean, even if you get half of the letters correct in this mm -hmm. form of solving it, that's going to get most of, like, if you solve A right away out of an English phrase, right. it's most of the time going to be filling in a good amount of the phrase itself. So just knowing most of it, then you can kind of shift the letter saying, well, this is obviously the word dog. I just need to fill in one of the letters instead of being dog. It's something else. Are you telling me that Wheel of Fortune actually came from Crypt? <laughs> Pretty much. From this, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> guessing A is your best bet if yeah. you're ever on Wheel of Fortune. But this made code-breaking leaps and bounds more approachable than having to just keep guessing and guessing until you got it right. So we've been talking about cryptography this whole time. And as we mentioned, there were multiple forms of hiding information. So what about steganography? 
Well, there's quite a bit of history behind steganography as well. In ancient times, the easiest forms of steganography were physical ones. For example, the earliest recorded use of the practice was around 500 BC when Histeus, ruler of Miltius, tattooed a message on the shaved head of one of his slaves and then waited for the slave's hair to grow back. Once it did, he then sent the slave to his son-in-law, Aristagoras, who promptly shaved the slave's head again and revealed the message. And then, then the slave actually turned bald. So that sucks. <laughs> I mean, I wonder how the hair grew back in after there's just a tattoo there. I feel like that would hurt. A tattoo on the scalp. An ancient, an tattoo. ancient tattoo. Yeah, you're talking like a hammer it's a and stick little, and poke for sure. Oh my gosh, yeah. But it's very interesting. You also have to assume that these tattoos also may have been used like in cryptology as well, or cryptography, excuse me, not cryptology. Sure. Uh, just in the same manner. Maybe it wasn't on their head. Maybe they did codes on someone's arm, did codes somewhere else. So tattoos, very, very prevalent in, I think, both of these. Yeah, and I mean, if you do it that way too, then you can conceal it still because mm-hmm. it's on your body. So it's easy- Wear a long sleeve. <laughs> yeah, easier for you to hide it. So you're kind of combining both of the the steganography and cryptography angles of of hiding the message. So you've got a double wall hiding that information from people. So you have two tattoos on your left arm. Are those supposed to represent something? Jacob, are you telling me something I'm supposed to know? Maybe. If you haven't figured it out yet, then you never will. <laughs> Our fifth year anniversary of the show is just going to be LOL. Like, yeah. you idiot. <laughs> it's supposed to be this deep meaning thing. So the Chinese took a different route than the ancient Greeks did, and they decided to write messages on fine silk or on paper and roll it into a ball and then cover that ball with wax. The messenger would then hide that ball by either swallowing it or hiding it in what my source called their quote-unquote nether parts. Oh. So basically, I think they just shoved it inside of themselves. So history repeats itself. That's uh, how cocaine gets delivered a lot of times (laughs) into the US of A. A lot of people smuggle drugs inside of themselves, surprisingly enough. Do you think they like drew lots at the least for who had to boof the message? (laughs) Probably. Uh, but I mean, I can't tell you how many, when I look up news stories for the, the news episodes that we've mm-hmm. done on here, there's so many stories of like women trying to hide like whatever they can inside themselves. Yeah. Copious amounts of weird things. <laughs> they have a more built in purse than we do, I guess. Like, apparently, yeah. <laughs> Another similar example of steganography took the form of carving a message into the wood backing of a wax tablet and then covering that with a fresh layer of wax to hide the message beneath. Uh, For reference, wax tablets were kind of the way of communication back in the day. It's just carving whatever message into a layer of wax and then sending it off. So the way they'd hide it is just write it into the backing and then cover it with wax. Right, and that was one of the earliest ways, or excuse me, that was a way that the Greeks and by extension the Spartans knew about like Xerxes and like his plan to do some shenanigans, which led to the greatest filming of all time, I 300, mean, yeah. yeah. You've seen it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So you're seeing this in every shape and form of, it should be very visible, it should be obvious in a way. But if you don't know what you're looking for, there's no way to know what's in there. Like, who would know, if you're an enemy, who would know to shave this man's head? 
Right, right, exactly. Who would know to remove wax from where wax should always be, right, on a tablet? It's very interesting. I do understand why they didn't check the buttholes. Yeah, that, that one makes a little more sense. But yeah. like even the shaved head one, I was thinking about it. Like if they got captured and taken as a slave or as a yeah. POW by whatever enemy state they were against, I feel like a lot of times they would just shave slaves' heads in general. So right. I mean, if that would happen, then you'd be like really SOL. Oh my but, God, yeah. So the practice of steganography continually evolved with people like Sir Francis Bacon hiding his messages in plain sight by changing the typeface of certain parts of his correspondences to carry hidden messages, or Girolama Cardano cutting a hole into a piece of paper or something similar, which they would then lay on top of the text and that those holes cut out in that piece of paper would single out the words that were meant to be the hidden message. That one's like one of the cooler ones in my opinion is very much so yeah if you just look it up it's just like a the one picture i saw was a strip of leather with squares cut out of it and you just laid it on top and it gave you the words yep the old grill method very ingenious during the American Revolutionary War, British and American forces used methods of steganography such as invisible inks Early types of invisible inks would include milk, vinegar, fruit juice, and urine to disguise their hidden texts, and these would then be deciphered using either heat or light. It's always urine. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. What, I guess that one's just very good. A mad scientist, some would say, he was like, I'm sick of things on my butt. I'll pee on things instead. It's the very important form of peeing in the snow. <laughs> Right, like yeah. peeing a message into the snow. Uh, but if you've seen National Treasure, mm-hmm. I, this is kind of similar to what he does with like the lemon juice and the heat and stuff like that. Very dramatically in the movie, but yeah, similar concept. I always forget about those movies and their existence, but dang, were they good. Those movies are awesome. <laughs> once World War I and World War II rolled around, the, mes- the methods evolved once again. Normal messages would contain hidden ones, usually disguised by reading a specified letter of each word in a sent message. For example, if you used the first letter in each word of the phrase, bring everyone's response letters immediately north, you could decipher that by taking the first letters of each word, and it would be a coding of Berlin. So, it's a very simple coding, but if you're not looking for it, you're never going to see it. Another, like, I think my personal favorite one of steganography use in well, World War II specifically was actually from the bad guys. Yeah. Like, using micro dot technology. Those are crazy. Yeah, I mean, it prints a good quality photograph. And again, during World War II, that's hard to come by because it was still, like, just taking off. But a good quality photograph, but sinks it shrinks it to the size where you would need like a magnifying glass to see like that is insane of in and of itself yeah so naked eye you're never gonna notice it oh no an innocent like it could be the eye or the dot on the top of an eye or something like yeah that. like it's very very simple crazy that the germans honestly were really on top of the game when it came to hiding messages and it's Probably a reason why they succeeded for so long, yeah. and once that got cracked, that's when they really started losing it. All right. I mean, it's not like we weren't, like the Allies weren't looking at them right before World War II and had spy activity happening, and they were just better. Right. No one saw 
like the invasion of Poland coming. Yeah. And I, especially the, the Polish. <laughs> if you compare it back to our episodes on Revolutionary War spies, like the reason that the Americans won is just because we had better spies, pretty right. much. So. All right. The practice of steganography has evolved into the modern age, and now it's pretty much used for online encryption and secret data. And most of the time, it's just used for security purposes. It's not really used to hide super secret data. Yeah, it's not like Kapschka can be considered steganography. Right. Where you're pointing out how many cars are in these uh, selected images. Yeah. But going back to cryptography again, people like Leonardo da Vinci even used cryptography in his writings and he would employ double letters in his notes and he would use another method known as mirror writing it's basically exactly what it sounds like you would use a mirror to write the notes as you see them in the reflection so that when you look at the pages normally all of the writing is backwards and then the only way you can write read it coherently is if you read it in the reflection back in a mirror which, again, you have to know to do that. Like, yeah. you, it's very hard to decipher what to do with a random bunch of letters. I've, I wanted to try this out and see how hard it would actually be to read it backwards like that. Because not only are you writing the, the word backwards, but you're also flipping the letters backwards. Right. So when you think about it, I was like, well, I could probably read it still. But then I thought about it, I'm like, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> Mary, Queen of Scots, attempted to smuggle coded messages out of her jail cell to organize a plot to kill Queen Elizabeth when she was imprisoned by her cousin. And Mary even employed more advanced methods in her cryptograms, like using two different symbols that would ultimately end up representing the same letter, such as using a cross to represent the letter S, but if there was a triangle after the cross, that would symbolize that the letter was doubled. This made the code much harder to crack since the symbols ultimately held the same meaning but on the surface it would throw off attempts to crack it because you cross on a triangle you're not going to think that's the same letter but in reality it's double it right you're not thinking that at all and it's very funny to imagine this woman just grinding in the jail cell like i gotta kill my captor yeah right and it's my cousin right ultimately mary was sold out and executed whoops uh, but after her demise, the greatest cipher method for a long time came about, known as the Visionaire cipher. And it was ultimately a more advanced version of the, C- the Caesar cipher, but it made the Caesar cipher into a grid pattern, which meant that you could use every possible combination of letter transposition possible through the Caesar cipher. So for this one, if you're able to, it might be easier to look up a picture of a visionaire cipher. It's spelled V-I-G-E-N-E-R-E. If you just look up a picture on Google, it'll give you a the grid. But if you can't do that, imagine a vertical column of each letter of the English alphabet on the left-hand side going down as a key, and then a horizontal row of each letter of the alphabet on the top as a key. So, those would all trickle down into every letter of the alphabet and cross, and then so you'd have diagonals of the same letter going pretty much up the entire pattern. But this was used in a way that was very ingenious. Whoever was sending a message would use a single code word that would be decided on between the recipient and the sender, and you would use that single code word to disguise an entire message. So, for example, we'll use the code word PIPE. 
If the message was simply the word hello, you would transpose that word into the letters P-I-P-E-P because you would just repeat the word pipe or whatever your code word is until you fill up the entirety of the message. Then, once you have that transpose lettering, you would use the Visionaire cipher. You would go to the letter P on the vertical column for the first letter of your code word, which is pipe. Then you would follow wherever that P line was in the row until you met with the H on the top of your column or on the top of your chart. Right. And then wherever that that vertical column from the P meets with the H, that's going to be your letter that you're going to use as your code word. Well, this would provide a two-step encryption for the process because you're not only using just one letter to transpose, but you're using your original word and your code word. Mm-hmm to come up with a singular letter. So where the column for P and the row for H would meet in the cipher in our example, you would get the letter W. So the first letter of hello would be replaced with a W. Very intricate and very time-consuming. Yeah, this is kind of of a confusing one. So if you want to look up a different video on how this works so you can see it better maybe that would help otherwise maybe i if i have time i can make one and throw it on our tiktok or Mm -hmm. on our youtube and then can show you guys a little bit better how this works but as i mentioned it's a two-step encryption and in for example hello has two l's in it but the word pipe doesn't have two letters that are recurring one after another so you would be going to a different column for the different letters and thus, the two L's in hello would not be the same letter in our code. You know what I mean? I do. It's just very, like, how much of these messages do you think were created just to throw people off? Like, just so enemy, enemy espionage agents were just spending so much time cracking, like, a fake code. Oh, there's probably you know? so many. That's so much writing. That's so intricate, yeah. too. And I mean, this was... A very useful cipher. It was yeah. as long as the intended recipient had the correct code word that they used to transfer the message from its original state into its code word state, you would be able to crack it once you got it by just doing the reverse of how you came up with the code. Mm-hmm. And it was so good that the cipher went unsolved for over two hundred years. And finally, a British cryptographer named Charles Babbage solved it in eighteen fifty four. It's a great name. Yeah, it is. <laughs> He he was born literally just to uncover this mystery. Oh, yeah. And I don't know how many of you are completely lost at how I just described that, which I don't blame you. So if you, it, like I said, if you want to look it up, it'll be very much easier if you can see where everything's working around. And like I said, I'll try and make a, a little short for it. So it's a little easier. Mm-hmm. But finally, one of the most impressive one of the most impressive cipher technologies in history needs to be mentioned, which is the Enigma machine from World War II. Mm. It was developed by the German military, and the Enigma machine is basically a typewriter that would code the message for you. It's far too complicated to try and explain fully without being able to show it to you, so if you do want a full and in-depth rundown on how the machine worked, there's a great YouTube video that I watched by the channel, the guy's name is Jared Owen, and he does 3D renderings of each thing that he discusses, and he breaks it down and explains each step of the process and each part in the Enigma machine. If you want to go watch that and have a very good rundown on how this thing worked, 
But basically, the operator would push a letter on the typewriter. It would then be scrambled three times by three internal rotors inside of the machine, bounced off a reflector, and then sent back through the rotors a second time. So in essence, it was scrambling that letter that you originally pushed a total of seven times, and then it would light up a different letter on a switchboard on top of the machine. And then even by pressing the same letter twice, it wouldn't return the same result because those rotors, as the messages went through them, would be spinning, which would change the input and thus change the output. There was also a plug board on the front of the machine that allowed you to optionally change individual letters. But the important thing to know is that each letter could be changed a total of nine times if you wanted to in a single press of a key. And in total, there are more than 17,000 encryption combinations before it would ever repeat the same letter. Which is just <laughs> fascinating. That's so many. Yeah. Which, I mean, you absolutely need it. This is the most, some of the most critical information that's going back and forth. Like, it's battle movements, it's plans, it's stuff like, where's the general going to be? Right. Like, for example, for example, the United States Navy shot down the, like, the admiral of the Japanese armada simply because we cracked a code. Yeah. Like, simply because we cracked the code and we knew where he was going to be. Yeah, like the purple code or whatever it was exactly, called. Yeah. Exactly. So, it's extremely crucial, and it's surprising it took this long to get, like, genuine technology into it, but I guess gotta do what you gotta do but i mean for being one of the first technologies to be used pretty good it's pretty, pretty impressive pretty, pretty good yeah so as long as the receiver of the message had the same settings on their enigma machine that the sender had they could just type the message that they got back in and it would send out the original message in reverse so you would get the message to keep it it's all automated for you at this point all you got to do is type it in I'm pretty sure this will just evolve into like chat GPT type an encrypted message yeah. for me, to like et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, exactly. And somehow the allies were able to find common phrases that were sent back and forth in their intercepted communications and eventually were able to find a way to crack the Enigma machine coding. And they pretty much reverse engineered one and made their own to crack the codes. And I don't know how they did that because that's above my pay grade to try and understand. But Alan Turing, I believe, isn't the guy yep. that pretty much cracked it, so good for him. Yeah, I believe there's a movie about this now just called The Code Breakers. Or, no, the book is called The Code Breakers, but the movie's like The Imitation Game or something. The like Imitation that. Game, yep. But yeah, extremely famous and extremely... Starring Benedict Cumberbatch. Good old Smog from The Hobbit movies. Smog. But absolutely incredible thing to uncover and to be known for i mean that helped the allied troops win the war this is yeah pretty huge in the yeah. grand scheme of things and i have no like i don't know how you go about trying to crack seventeen thousand different combinations before you even get the same letter wouldn't even know where to start nope no idea but good on you alan turing so with some background in place on codes and ciphered texts Let's get into one of the most intriguing and frustrating ciphers that has ever been written, known as the Voynich Manuscript. Yes. So this text is named after one of its owners, Wilfred Voynich, and it is a coded text written in a fanciful writing on a handbound book from the 15th century. With some of the funniest, weirdest, most bizarre images of a book 
you will ever see. Oh, 100%. We'll be, I'll definitely be posting images from this book on our socials once this episode comes out. But if you want to just Google it yourself, there's so many pictures. The whole thing has been digitized and put online. So if you wanted yep. to even read it, you could. But the language of the book, which is dubbed Voynichese, has never been deciphered. And it's basically become an annual tradition that someone will claim to have finally cracked it, but no one has ever definitively actually gotten it correct. Depending on who you want to listen to, the alphabet of the book is made up of around 20 to 30 different unique characters. But really, most of what we know about the manuscript comes from the crudely drawn illustrations in the book. It contains unique drawings of plant life, most of, most of which haven't been definitively tied to anything that we know of. Additionally, it has what are believed to be astrological charts, with some of the imagery representing zodiac symbols. And there's also drawings of naked women and oddly shaped bathtubs and other pipe mechanisms, rounded out by a section of herbs and what looks to be lab equipment, which is followed by pages of just text. Yeah, a lot of naked women in this book. Yep. There's no there's no lack of naked women. Yeah. <laughs> the book has been carbon dated with its creation being placed between 1404 and 1438. The author or authors of the book remain unknown and the earliest known person to own the book was Holy Roman Emperor Rudolf II, which is like mid 1500s to place a time frame on it. So there's about 150 years where we really have no idea where this book was or where it came from. And also how the Pope got it into his possession. Not the Pope, the Holy Roman Emperor. Or excuse me, yes. But yes pretty yes, much. Yes. <laughs> uh, I did read an article that says that someone thinks they might have traced it to a person before Rudolph II, but it still leaves about a hundred year gap and we still don't know who wrote it. So, right, right. We know that Emperor Rudolph II had it because it was mentioned in a letter and then he passed it on to a pharmacist from his court, whose name was signed in the front pages of the manuscript. And this was only found way later when we did UV analysis on the pages, and there was a very faint remnant of that signature on the pages. The book then passes hands a few times with attempts to translate the language, all ultimately coming to dead ends, even in the hands of some of the more learned scholars of the time, such as a man known as Athanasius Kircher, uh, he kept the book in, a li- in the library at the Roman College, where it stayed for a while until the Jesuits were suppressed out of there, and then the book was moved from the library at the, oh, I believe it was called the Collegium Romanum, and it was moved from there to a private palace before the entire place was ransacked, pretty much, so that it could save some of the more important books in the collections. And then from there, it was eventually moved to the Vatican at the beginning of the 20th century, where it was sold to Wilfred Voynich, who was a rare book collector and bookstore owner. It's pretty much uncertain how he actually came into possession of it, with Voynich only telling his wife the true details, which led some to believe that he may have stolen the book. But nonetheless, it stayed with him until he died, and then it stayed with his wife until she died. And eventually, it ended up getting donated to the Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library at Yale, where it rarely makes appearances in person, but as I mentioned, the entire thing has been digitized and is available in full color online. I love the phrasing of how it really makes like public appearances. Yeah. It's like, get your selfie with the Voynich Manuscript. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's probably a good thing because it's five, 600-year-old book. Oh, yeah. Single flash photography like from your phone would probably make it blow up. Yeah. 
So, what about the book makes it so fascinating, you ask? Well, pretty much ultimately the reason is because it's indecipherable. That's the biggest reason. And the fact that the images are so weird kind of makes it tantalizing to everybody because those that's something that everyone can kind of understand. Right. If you just take the text out of it and you just page through the different images on the book, it just looks like looks like the gobbledygook. To yeah, it, lo- it looks like a a weird seven-year-old drew it. <laughs> right. But it it's also just very in-depth drawings of like plant life. Yeah. As well. So it's it's it does a weird thing where it balances preposterous and informational. Yeah, exactly. Whoever could read it. The drawings of plants resemble other medieval style herbal texts. Basically, these types of texts were old timey encyclopedias that would log the world's plant life. And it, these were important because plant life was heavily used in medicine at the time. So it was important to know which ones were helpful and which ones are poisonous. However, the images in most herbals, as these encyclopedias were known, were drawn by professional artists. So they were very detailed, they were very well drawn, while the Voynich manuscript drawings are pretty sloppy and very crude. So this lends people to believe that whoever actually wrote the book may have also done the art inside of the book as well, perhaps even making all of the art based on secondhand recollections from another person, which which is kind of a common thing back in the day. Like there's. Uh, one of the videos that I watched, they had a picture of an elephant based on like a medieval drawing of it that someone was told. So it it kind of lends a lot of credence to the fact that that could probably be true. I could definitely see that. I mean, there's a bathtub of, or excuse me, there's a waterfall of women going back. <laughs> so I don't know if that... Sign me up. Yeah, I don't know if that happened before or after it was written. But, but the, this yeah. the plant life section is pretty much just the first section of the book. They kind of separate it into, I want to say, like four major sections. The next section contains large circular charts that are pretty remarkable to look at. Actually, they're kind of awesome drawings. Oh, yeah. These are very cool. The charts contain useful information, such as, as I mentioned earlier, known zodiac symbols, as well as our first and only pieces of text in the entire book that can be translated. Beneath the zodiac signs are the months that represent the signs in the images, and it's believed that the writing is in a language known as Akatan, which was a type of French language that was pretty popular and widely spoken in the south part of France for a while in early medieval times. But that's pretty much where the translation of any of the texts in the book stops. <laughs> That's where they decided people need to know what this is. They need to know the months. <laughs> yeah, I, and they're these are probably the most accurate drawings to what they actually should be. Right. Because if you compare them side by side with ancient drawing, or not ancient, but like medieval drawings of the uh, zodiac signs, they're pretty accurate. Mm-hmm. The belief for why these star charts and astrological symbols are in the book is once again related back to medicine. Because in medieval times, it was believed that not only was the type of medicine that you were taking important, but also at what time of the year you were taking that medicine. So basically, like if the if you're in Leo season, I believe you weren't supposed to. You were supposed to focus on like stomach medicines and stuff like that. And other times, you weren't supposed to take any medicine that was for your head, stuff like that. So it's all these 
old timey humors and stuff like that. It's like, man, my migraines really pop off in October. <laughs> Sorry, it's Sagittarius season. No yeah. head medicine for you. <laughs> just, just, just taking away his little roots. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you don't get any. So this section is probably another aid in healthcare following the common scientific practices of the time, which carries us into the next section that contains various images of naked women in bathtubs, usually filled with a green liquid. It's like the back of the book where it's all like talking about sex ed. (laughs) That's why I imagined this section is like... I also imagine all of the green liquid to be the Nickelodeon slime. The slime, yeah. (laughs) It goes all the way to the top. But in reality, the green liquid, uh, from what I... I'm imagining is probably that it, the water was filled with some type of herbs or some type of natural healing supplement or whatever in in the water, right? Like hot spr- like the kind of a myth of like hot springs give you life type deal. Yeah, exactly. You know, something like that, or like maybe like the fountain of youth. Oh, it was just like a medieval bath salts. Yeah, right. <laughs> not the not the ones that you take and then make you go insane. It was just. Fields of marijuana. (laughs) (laughs) Some of the later images in the section even seem to represent early versions of maybe showers, because some of the women are standing next to various twisting pipes with what Mm -hmm. looks to be water coming out of them. But once again, these images are echoing books from the time that would detail various bathhouses around the areas that the books were in. And in these books, each bath was believed to provide a specific effect or help soothe a certain part of the body, which once again fit into that same theme of medical advice or some sort of health focus. The final illustrated section contains various drawings of once again plants, but in this case, it's more so herbs and roots. And most of the time, they're placed next to odd-looking cylinders or what could be containers. They look to be crude versions of other medicinal or alchemical manuscripts of the time, which contain images of early laboratory equipment, such as early beakers or test tubes. But in this case, it's probably more likely that it's some type of guidebook for an apothecary who create herbal medicines. So that continues once again the theme that there is information in there to help with some sort of healing, physical healing. But that's the last section that we have anything to go off of because the final section of the book is all text-based and no one really knows what it is. Yeah, but you can't really put two and two together with just an unbreakable code. You need the pictures. Yeah, people, they call it the recipes section because they think it's like recipes for potions and stuff. Oh. But I don't know how they got that conclusion. Oh, that's just for funsies. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) They were like, sure. It's five to ten pages of I want to write about my dog. It's like, uh, I don't know if you've seen the South Park episode where they go through like the really big debt crisis and the, they're trying to return the Margaritaville. So it gets the chicken's head off and it just like runs on the yeah. circle. Yeah, it's basically them doing that. And they're like, that's what the last section is. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Uh, it's very interesting. Like I did see in a few articles that they're trying to use AI to crack this code. And of course, like you mentioned, every year it's, oh, someone's cracked it. Yeah. But still not quite yet there. But we'll see. Yeah, the most famous one was from 2016, I want to say, where there's two guys that believed it was some type of Hebrew writing Mm. that was translated, and neither of them spoke Hebrew, so they just put it into a Google Translator, and then everyone's like, 
well, we can't take you seriously anymore. Right, yeah. How, how, does, that, how does that work? How can you know? Yeah. <laughs> so the Voynich manuscript does share similarities with texts of the time period, but the plant life in the Voynich manuscript is far stranger than any, anything commonly found in nature, and the baths and proto-showers are very complex and just, for lack of a better word, weird. So all we can pull is that it's likely that it's some type of scientific handbook, but as far as the text goes, we still really have no fucking clue. There's no way to know without any sort of, like, sure, the images are goofy, and they range from, like, informative as well at some spots, like we mentioned, like, there's great, great information about uh, astronomical findings, like, it has actual i mean it has the actual zodiac in there so part of me thinks that it is an informational book but it's just to a language like lost through time which is one of the options for sure Mm -hmm. so i think that's probably the most common theory at this point but or it's a witch's handbook so we could also go with that 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 is always an option especially in this time period (laughs) yes uh, but as far as the text goes, there now scholars believe it's written in two separate languages, which are lang- labeled language A and language B. And some scholars do believe that the two separate types of writing were written by separate people, with most of the book being written in language A by a singular person, while the bath and the star sections are written in language B by what they believe could be up to four different people. Oh, like based on handwriting? Yeah. Yeah. However, nobody has been able to definitively pin down what the original language behind either A or B is, so it makes it nearly impossible to crack the code that hides the text meaning. Some have suggested that the language are simply gibberish, but the writing follows patterns that are common in all types of writing use, like common phrases and letter patterns. So it is some type of language, but it's very mechanically written and it follows the same structure throughout the entire thing and doesn't deviate pretty much at all. Gosh, that is interesting. So it is some type of language, but where does that leave us? I wonder if they carbon dated, like with the carbon dating, if they carbon dated like every single page. I have no idea how carbon dating works. No, they they took like certain pages out of it. So, Mm, I mean, that is a good point. Like, if you are just carbon dating a certain page, that page could have been original, but the rest could have been added at a later date. Right. So, yeah. you never really know. But all of the uh, paint and stuff, I believe they said, is like, it's accurate for the time period. Right. So, it makes sense that it would be written back then. But basically, our best guesses at this point are that the writing is either, as Evan mentioned, a language lost to time that we have no other examples of. It's or it's an abbreviated form of an old language, like an abbreviated form of old Latin or an old romantic language, or perhaps that it is a completely constructed language similar to Esperanto. Yeah. And if you don't know what Esperanto is, it was a man-made language that consisted of combinations of various European languages, and its original intention was to be used as a universal language that everyone could speak. And it is the most popular constructed language in the world. I think there's like 100,000 people that speak it. So it's pretty popular, honestly, for as far as constructed languages go. Oh my God, yeah. That's like for just piecing together some different languages for everyone. Yeah. And this is uh, similar 
to what like J.R.R. Tolkien had done has done with the Lord of the Rings in his Elven language, or mm-hmm. in Star Wars, the Ewoks have their own language. Uh, so since the book is thought to be written in scientific language, it's believed that even if it is some type of cipher, it's maybe a text that's not trying to conceal information, but instead it was an early attempt at a universal tongue that everyone could speak and use to study and educate themselves and just never caught on and nobody else knew about it. Oh, that's a bummer. So it's it's a proto-Esperanto that no one knew. The writer's like, here are all the secrets to humanity, but you have to learn this new language. As Americans, we'd be like, out. Yeah, no We're thanks. out. <laughs> so it, it could have had good intentions and then either whoever wrote it maybe died or whoever wrote it just never really got, it never caught on. No one ever took him seriously and then it just kind of died with him yeah no one ever wrote the or them he could have just or you're right they could have just uh just simply not written a deciphering code and died exactly if that is the case then we just really have no way of knowing the keys for this constructed language since we don't know who the author was and we don't have anything else to decode it with some other guesses say that the book itself was a prank that has lasted for centuries but if that's the case, in my opinion, why would someone go through all of the trouble to, one, create a language, two, illustrate it, and three, then bind it well enough that it could stay together for 600 years just for a prank? It's Johnny Knoxville's great, 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 great <laughs> grandfather. I don't know. All credit to Johnny Knoxville. I love him as a person, but I don't know if he's smart enough to write his own language. If he's got that in him, no. Yeah, and then <laughs> illustrate the whole thing. But one theory about the prank is that John Dee, who was a famous 16th century mathematician who had an interest in the occult, along with his friend Edward Kelly, who is a self-proclaimed spirit medium, may have written this whole book in order to appease Holy Roman Emperor Rudolf II, while also selling it to him to make some money. Rumored to be around 600 ducats. I respect it, you know. And I, I in my original research, because I kind of rewrote my original notes, uh, I had in there that I tried to find a value for what a ducat was, and the best that I could find was that it was equal to around either $11 USD, four and a half days worth of skilled labor, or seven live chickens, a bottle of wine, and a pound of bread. <laughs> Honestly, give me the last deal. Let's have ourselves a day. Seven live chickens and a bottle of wine. <laughs> oh, I could. That would be. That just sounds like a fun little cookout. And just hang out. Yeah. But I don't know if any of that's accurate. So <laughs> That is very funny, though. But, <laughs> Four and a half hours of skilled yeah. labor, too. But since the carbon dating goes back over 100 years before the time of Rudolph II, the theory of Edward Kelly and John Dee is kind of ruled out of the picture. Others have said that perhaps the book was coded because of the stigma against alchemy in the time period, because it was technically illegal in some areas to practice alchemy, and since most of the depictions of people in the book are women, perhaps it was written as a female health guide but could be mistaken as an alchemy manuscript. So if that's the case, then the writer would have had reason to try and hide these writings with code, especially if the writer themselves was a woman who mm. was writing about women's health and was scared to be accused of witchcraft. Witchcraft, very hot in the streets. Yeah, at this definitely. Point in time. And honestly, I, I don't think that's too out of the question, considering all of the images in the book are women, and it's like very... 
plant-based medicine healing and stuff like that, which is females, the females in society kind of led the charge on that a lot of the times. Like you had the medicine women and mm-hmm. stuff like that. So, Well, yeah, I don't believe in this book there's any reference or mention of like Christianity, right? So I, I mean, there's I, really no way to know, I guess, but... Right, I mean, just like from the imagery, yeah. Like, there's no crosses, or totally. So let's say this: if it was a woman that wrote it as a woman's health guide, it could easily be perceived of, oh, how come there's no imagery of the one thing that's dominating our lives for the entire medi- medieval time or the entire Middle Ages? So, right, could easily be construed as a witchcraft book, exactly. Especially when you throw the zodiac stuff in there. Oh yeah, they're like what. The moon has a face. What is this? Which, which, which? Older theories said that maybe a 13th century philosopher named Roger Bacon wrote the book and then coded it to protect whatever secrets he had come up with. But once again, the carbon dating of the book disproves that theory. Of course, there have been some people that said that maybe it's an alien book, which is why we don't know what the language is and probably never will, unless this alien race comes back and tells us that they wrote this book. If the aliens, if this is what aliens can do with their drawings, I'm out on aliens. <laughs> You're not very impressive. They here. dropped off a book. They flew in a spaceship, which most likely is a time machine. Hey, we have en- and dropped off a book. <laughs> we have engineering brains, not art brains. <laughs> right. But overall, the book sits undeciphered to this day. Uh, as Evan mentioned, there have been AI computer programs that have been run to attempt to decipher this book, but most of them rely on knowing the original language of a text to decipher it. And since we don't know that key piece of information, it's not possible for most of these programs to do anything with the code. So over 600 years, the book has puzzled scholars and intrigued common people with the hope that one day it will be deciphered and all of its contents will be finally revealed. But until that day, it's a good reminder that the world can still provide us with mysteries that even we can't solve. And I think that just makes life a little more magical. I think so, too. I do hope that this just remains unsolved. Yeah. Like, it's not like, who killed Kennedy, for example, <laughs> right? Like what, it's, oh, what if it is? Like, <laughs> <laughs> that would be a That twist. would be something, yeah. <laughs> all of the naked women were a diversion. No, exactly, that was exactly. all his mistresses. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, it's not like something that is just the world is on the edge of its seat to know, right? Like, we can still go on without knowing. Yeah, I mean, most it's almost certain that it's probably some sort of medical book right. or some sort of health conscious book or something like that. So, I, I mean, at this point, any of the secrets that it does hold will probably be maybe useful in a different aspect, like, oh, we used to have a plant that we don't have anymore that based on this text because i know there's a lot of stuff like that with ancient medicines that they made that we just don't have those plants anymore they went extinct so that i could see being useful information but other than that i think it's probably just going to be ancient attempts at engineering for public health but totally and that also to your point that just made me think of like wonder how many like exterminator extinct or excuse me yeah extinguished like plants and animals were in europe like just even 600 years ago yeah so we may be looking at this book like what a wacky drawing of a carrot but it could just be a completely different thing oh 100 percent or like what what is this slime right like maybe that's just something from something we've never heard of or even seen oh and there's been 
theories suggested that maybe this book came from like South America, and that's why we don't right. recognize a lot of the plant life because it yeah. wasn't native to Europe, and it probably went away in South America once <laughs> the Europeans got there. So I mean that that's another plausible theory. <laughs> so I could absolutely see that being being the case. Yeah, I mean it it came from the early 15th century and we got there like late 15th century so that would account for not knowing where the book was for a while and then yeah. one of these explorers just brought it back with them, gave it to someone else then it got to the king. <laughs> Honestly, it could be or it could even be like someone rewriting like let's say it is from Africa or anywhere uh, outside of Europe. It could be someone had the original original book then wrote it all down, and then put new pictures in, right? Like yeah. Something like that. Like, there's so many different use cases or different cases for this book that there's just no way that we can know. Stole it could it. be the longest game of telephone of yeah. all time, right? Sto- we just stole it, wrote it, like, symbol for symbol, yeah, and then we didn't know what those symbols meant, and then we just passed it along. And then we got mad. <laughs> yeah, because we killed <laughs> off the person that wrote it, probably. <laughs> Oops, we did it again. Not us, it was Spain. It's always Spain, exactly. It's always Spain. <laughs> but yeah, that uh, that is our breakdown on a, l- a little run through of code breaking, cryptography, steganography, hiding information in plain sight, basically. And then the uh, the one book that everyone's been fascinated with trying to break for hundreds of literally years. six centuries at this point. That's so much time to just not be able to figure out why are all these women going down this. Nickelodeon slime slide. But uh, like you mentioned, I kind of hope that this just remains a mystery for at least as long as I'm alive. Right. I don't want anyone to tell me what it is anymore. Exactly. Like, let's just leave it. Let it be. Yeah. Makes it more fun. Or maybe we should try to crack it in action. Oh, God. (laughs) And just get clicks on clicks on clicks. I mean, you can buy like a replica version like of the book. Yeah. With the original letters that were in it and stuff like that, too, when it was sent from the king to other people. And I kind of want one, but I'm assuming it's probably really expensive. So I would assume that's a pretty penny. Not going to lie. But if you have any theories on what this book could be, if you want to continue the conversation, we are unbelievably reachable so you can find us on patreon first and foremost where we currently have one level of uh, patronage of being a subscriber uh, just five dollars gets you a sticker as well as gets you access to vote for listener suggested topics that we do every single month uh, so look us up uh, gems of history podcast on patreon we also have a twitter and we are at gems underscore history. You can find Jacob by Jacob from Wisco, myself at whatevskis, and then Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, and Facebook, all at Gems of History Podcast. Absolutely. Holy cow. I got through that all it, in one try. Speed ran it. So you can buy a reproduction of it that just looks like a normal book on Amazon for $34. But there's also one on eBay. That looks cooler, but it's three hundred dollars. <laughs> oh god! So, <laughs> if you want your own copy of the Voynich manuscript, I guess it depends how much you want to spend on what quality one you're going to get. The three hundred dollar one—it's basically just they rub it in dirt for you. <laughs> oh, here we go. The a, a website called AP Manuscripts makes like a pretty good reproduction of it, and it's from two hundred ninety-nine, depending on what cover you get. So, um, yep. Um, pretty expensive. Maybe I'll stick to just the Google images. Yeah. 
<laughs> or the digital copy. Exactly. Uh, but thank you guys for listening to this episode of the Gems of History podcast. As Evan mentioned, you can get in touch with us. Let us know what your fan theories are. If you guys know anything about this book or if you do some research after you hear our episode and you want to tell us what you think, please let us know. The more we could talk about it, the more theories we know, then the more I can go insane about it. Hey, we love your thoughts. We, we love getting inside of your heads mm-hmm. and planting viruses in there. That's our whole show. Stig- we're <laughs> crypt- we're crypt- cryptographing all of their brains to write secret messages just to each other. Exactly. Yeah, if you want to write us coded messages either, that'd be fun. Oh, ooh, great idea. Leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts. Leave us a review. Uh, put in code. We will, and if you tweet at us saying like, "Hey, like, just give us a heads up that you left it in a code," uh, we will try to break it. And if we can't within a certain amount of time, we'll send you a sticker. Hell yeah, I like that idea. All right, there you go. There's your task. Go get to it. Start writing codes. Uh, until then, we love you guys. Thank you for listening, and stay polished out there. <laughs>